My name is Tyler Fornis, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Good, the Bad, and the Hungi AEW podcast here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. We take a broad scope approach to the world of all elite wrestling and the entire universe of Tony Khan. We talk about the big matches, the big stars, the promos, the storylines. And we also look at it from a big picture perspective. How are things going to change over the course of the next 10 years with AEW still in the picture? How are companies like WWE going to adapt and adjust to AEW? Are they going to be a similar way like they did with WCW in the late 1990s? Will there be a counterpunch? We talk about all of that and more on the good, the bad, and the hungry every week on the Voices of Wrestling Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hunky here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. My name is Tyler Fornis. With me, as always, is my co-host. Well, actually, not always, yeah, because he's back, say. baby. After a two-week absence, his name is Fred Moreland. Fred, I heard that you uh, made a bunch of college kids feel dumb over the last couple weeks. Hey, look, anytime you get a chance to do that, you got to take it. So, yeah, I uh, just had some work to take care of, and the work has been done. So I'm back to talk about... Um, a wrestling company that is kind of frustrating. Um, good times, great memories. Oh, this wrestling company. And if you listen to last week's episode one, thank you Two, we all know how angry I am at the direction of this wrestling company and how it's shifted completely from what it was and what it was setting out to be. And that mission statement is kind of gone. Kablooey. Uh, Fred, do you echo those same sentiments? Yeah, uh, I think we've really seen a sea change of what AEW is in uh, 2023. And I don't really think for the better. Um, But I I just kind of think this is what the company is. Uh, Joe Lanza behind his paywall, you know, did a big long uh, rant about how uh, this is just what they are. And it's not even, you know, something you can get mad about because it's not like it's a one week, you know, uh, whoops, we, you know goof up thing it's what is they want this to be and uh i you know i guess that's just how it's gonna be and i don't know you know there's plenty of finger pointing to go around of course with tony khan being at the head of it, it's you know buck stops with him uh he, he's definitely uh got his hands all over this as usual but you know they hired Mac Man- mike mansuri sorry uh back in i believe february who was uh the uh basically the number two to kevin dunn and uh, a lot of the changes started around then. And, of course, you had the MJF uh, as the world champion. Has a lot of pool in the company. There's been lots of reports about that. And, um, you know, whoever else is involved, you want to point your finger at. But this is just kind of what the company is at this point in time. And unless uh, Tony Khan makes drastic changes as to uh, who he's listening to, who he's putting up there as a you know, as a leadership position kind of situation, um, then it's just going, this is what, just what it's going to be. Um, I thought 
this week's dynamite was pretty good i will say um i went seven out of ten on it i think but there's some really dumb stuff on it and that sucks um and you know it's not like AEW has been some pristine company that has never had a flaw let's be clear about that there's been some crappy storylines ever since the start with a you know the nightmare collective sticks out and some early dark order stuff was really rough um and then we had like the you know sammy guevara as a baby face was a failure um the four pillars title picture at the beginning of the year was not a success i don't think uh miro's debut um scorpio sky and ethan page as the what the, the best men or the top men or whatever they were top guys um I can't, uh, you know, but the difference now is that the storyline that I think is failing is the main event storyline. And more importantly, it's not just like the main event storyline. It is the main storyline. And with that, you know, I mean, it's just sucking up so much oxygen on the show. Um, I have made this comparison last time I was on, I think. And, you know, it continues to be kind of like, the Gucci joke from Simpsons. Um, you know, he it's just everywhere on the show all the time. Uh, if MJF is not on screen, it feels like it's really just we're just eating time until he is next on screen or someone in his cavalcade of characters who are going to talk about him. And that's all, you know, like if it was, you know, in the Attitude Era, when it was Stone Cold Steve Austin is the hottest wrestler on the planet, or The Rock is the hottest wrestler on the planet, or you know, over in WCW with NWO when they were the hottest act in the com- in, in the world, or at least North America, um, you can get away with that because those are the biggest acts and they're hot and they feel you know like everyone's into it. And I think some of the MJ MJF stuff works in the building because. I think fans kind of a large chunk of them just like to do the participatory stuff. Um, however you feel about that. I think that's, you know, part of why some of these reactions come. And I do think people like the idea early on of Adam Cole and MJF as friends leading to something, but then it just didn't lead to anything. And now we're just kind of in this position where we've got this storyline um, with Jay White, where, it's kind of been a little directionless for the past few weeks. Um, we're trying to work in the whole mystery angle of who did the attacks in the the devil mask, but you know, initially it was just an attack on Jay White, and then it turned around to be like six weeks later. It felt like uh, I'm not sure the exact time frame. It turned around to an attack on the acclaimed, and you've got Excalibur on commentary trying to sell us on how. You know, whoever's behind the mask is ordering these assaults on all of MJF's friends. And it's like, well, no, it was just this one angle on the acclaim, which completely counteracted the, you know, goes against the direction of the last angle. Um, and I don't know, man. Um, I, there are several things on the show I like right now. I like a lot. Uh, I think the Orange Cassidy, John Moxley angle storyline is really good. Um, I like the, uh, uh, what they did this past Wednesday with the Young Bucks and uh, the Golden Jets. Uh, and I'm pretty excited for what that match is going to be on the pay-per-view. But uh, when you're doing so much stuff devoted to this main event storyline um, with Jay White and MJF, and MJF doesn't feel hot at all. 
Um, I just don't think it's working. And it's a frustrating time for the company, sadly. I want to talk about this opening segment because then we have a lot of extra stuff that we're going to talk about, mainly the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. But the opening segment to me felt like using the same vehicle that's been getting them a lot of the criticism to exercise a tonal shift, but it's not completely out of that criticized element where they do the backstage shtick with MJF talking to Adam Cole, but then you get MJF, like you get a lot of serious tones from it. You get the confrontation with Daniel Garcia. Then you get the BS with Roderick Strong and the kingdom. But then Roddy at the end kind of turns an about face and says that he's going to remind people that he's a real professional wrestler. And that gives me a little bit of hope. And it felt different, even though it was the same. It's like going to IHOP and getting a pancake, but then going back to IHOP and getting chocolate chips in your pancakes. It's the same thing with a little bit of a twist. I don't know if it's going to mean anything long-term or if it's going to mean anything, period. But it gives me a little bit of hope that they understand that this kind of sucks and they're using this as a gateway to get out of it. Uh, yeah, I feel where you're coming from on that, but honestly, I'm at the point with this where I will believe it when I see it. Um, if, um, if we do get this change, cool, good. Um, but, uh, you know, I just do not have faith. Yeah, because we still had uh, Roddy doing the screaming stuff. We ha- still had the draft stuff with uh, Matt Taven. Um, I just don't have any faith that they're really going to move, you know, in a noticeably different direction. I could just see it Roddy beating, I don't know, uh, Darius Martin, I guess, just some lower card baby face, uh, and then immediately strapping the, the neck brace back on and, you know, screaming, you know, Adam or Max or whatever into a mic for, you know, three minutes. Um, I don't know. I I feel like they've burnt a lot of goodwill um, with the initial fan base. And for all this theorizing that they're trying to do this to appeal to more people, you look at the ratings, um, it ain't doing that. You know, there's, there's no boost to dynamized ratings or collisions or rampages they're all what they are and frankly trending a little downwards now could that just be major sports competition yeah maybe uh we'll see um uh but nxt this week you know was 0.01 basically margin of error right behind dynamite in the the ratings um i think nxt caught a relatively competition free night um, but yeah, and, and I turn on NXT and like, there's some good matches sometimes, but like just the rest of the show is just the hokiest shit I've ever seen <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we've got people trying to convince themselves that, uh, Brian Pillman Jr. is just good at anything. And Jade Cargill is some, you know, entering savant waiting to be unlocked by the magic of the performance center. And, uh, you know, uh, I think some people that seriously feel like that are going to be a little disappointed, but we'll see. Oh, I can't wait until she faces Charlotte. That's going to be an all-timer. Oh, boy. that that You know, I will say uh, the best Jade Cargill match, I think, from her AEW run was with Athena, where basically it was just, I'm just going to kick the your face in and you can do it back to me. You thought it was better than the Taya match? 
Because the, the first tie match I thought was the 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 one we went four stars on. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe uh, the downside of the Athena one was uh, that it was very short, like six minutes short. Um, but I think I liked the work in it. Uh, I think maybe the Taya one was a better match. Uh, but my point is that Jade could easily have that, you know, once every six months Charlotte Flair match where she just stiffs someone to death and gets stiff back. And that's her like biannual good match. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, the one thing that really frustrates me about AEW is it's the same thing that frustrates a lot of people about TNA. Why are you trying to do what your number one competitor is doing mm-hmm. when you can just do something different? Because you know what? You're never going to be the best at it. Yeah. The, the people that want that are already getting that. So why are you just trying to give them a discount version of that with different people? Just be you. Yeah, and, and it's readily apparent it's not working again because there's been boost to the ratings. So this theory that like you have to go full WWE to you know have you know mainstream fans. I mean, you've been doing it for months now. And there's no real growth. So yeah. I don't know what you could expect at this point. You know, I do have one other take from the show because we could beat the hell out of this point and we'd be right. Um, Swerve Strickland has the most charisma on all of AEW programming. That dude is a star. And the confidence that there. he the confidence that he walks out with is just incredible. And yeah. he's got an aura. And this isn't this shouldn't be news to anybody, but it just was so apparent when Nana came out early and then Swerve is just in his jacket and he's just walking out with with a with a smirk on his face, just just absorbing it all in and just a confident son of a bitch. He's just, he's so good. He really and is good right now. You know what? I hate the idea of the 50 50 booking, but if you're going to use that kind of trope, I think you do it right now with Hangman Page and Swerve. You have Swerve beat him in full gear, and then you have Swerve beat him in, in like maybe have him beat Hangman Page in Texas death. And that because that's become Hangman's match, and then you elevate Swerve and potentially put the belt on him because yeah. what he's doing right now is great. It's over. He's delivering every single time, and you have a potential crossover because of that rap music video and stuff, where you can maybe get a little bit of mainstream attention, which is always a great thing when it comes to professional wrestling, and it's a different direction but a direction that also makes sense is cohesive with how the booking strategy has been. And it opens up your world champion to boundless new possibilities as far as feuds and how you're going to like continue to build up the belt and this company. And if it, you got to do it. And I, I still think Jay White has a chance to beat MJF. I don't think he will. I think that's going to end up being Samoa Joe, but it's a non-zero shot. Yeah. And, You've finished this hangman program way to give him the belt in like, I don't know, double or nothing. I think that's probably like a good time frame because it gives you enough time to get through the hangman page stuff without rushing it with continuing this really well done build. And then he goes for the belt. Yeah, that's that's what I would do. I think it's a smart move um, at the same time. Um, you know, I wouldn't complain about uh just outright put it on Joe or Jay White even. 
Um, I don't think they're going to do Jay White in particular. It feels like they're, you know, he's just going to. Let's talk about Joe. What did you think about him vacating oh, the belt? It, that gave me option C vibes. It didn't give me that. No guarantee. Yeah, well, he, it has no guarantee, but he's surrendering it to pursue the world title. I mean, that, he already had a world championship match while wearing that belt, so like, it didn't make much sense to me um, logistically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get what you're saying, but like again, he, he already had the the title match a couple like what, what two months ago now um, against MGF while holding the television championship. And, uh, you know, you have this guy hold the belt for like a year and then he doesn't put anyone over. And there's plenty of options where you can have him lose it and keep his heat and keep pursuing MJF. You know, you could have had MJF cost him the match. You could have had Smojo have a scheduled defense and MJF insert himself and like, I'm going to hurt you by taking your belt. And they fight with each other too much and the third person gets it you know there's various you know booking options none of which i'm super like enthused by but then again i'm not really enthused by don't build someone to beat samoa joe for the bell just have him drop it you know that's that's kind of i i realize that you know there's people that like can't stand any mention of ring of honor on aw tv um which feels very reactionary to me um you could have at least had um, Joe put someone over and, and then, like, you know, sell it as uh, now you can see this guy who just beat Samoa Joe defend the belt on Ring of Honor, you know, Honor Club, uh, which is clearly not doing very well. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that was a, a fumble, a pretty, you know, like a, a noticeable fumble. Um, just not a good story to me, you know. Mm hmm. I I I don't know where this goes from here as far as the television title, but right now it sucks. But as always, something we've come to learn with Tony Khan, sometimes when something appears that it sucks, it can actually be really good or it could just really, really suck. Yeah. I'm willing uh, to give him the grace to let it play out, but right now I don't like the direction. Yeah. Uh, I do want to sing some praises here for some some stuff I did like off the no, show. No, Fred, we hate we hate this company now. We have to only be negative. That's how this works. <laughs> um, I did like the elite segment. I liked uh, the Bucks turning heel. I feel like that they need that, uh, that they've been pretty directionless as faces. And I thought the segment with Jericho went well. And if they decided, you know, uh, turn into a different direction there and have Jericho go heel, I guess they could. Uh, but it feels like that the Bucks are turning heel. And I, I like that segment. I thought it was pretty good. Um, there were several good matches on the show, too. Um, I went four and a quarter on Swerve and Penta, and I also went four and a quarter on um, Briscoe and Jay White. Um, that was the best Jay White match we've seen in this company. Outside, of, it, you could argue the tag match with FTR. Yeah, there was, there was the that. best singles match Jay White has had in this company. Uh, I probably would go with Adam Page last month, um, personally, but. Yeah, I mean, this is probably my number two. Um, that Adam Page match was so weird because, like, it was good, but that was on that dynamite that was just lifeless. Yeah. I still like the match a lot. What can I say? Um, um, you know, nice to have Adam Page wrestling. Um, but, you know, um, I, I do want to knock two things on the show, though. One, you spend the whole weekend on social media with Daniel Garcia promising how he's going to 
you know, do this for all the young guys when they come up and everything. I, I'm not expecting him to win. That that wouldn't make any sense given all the movement going on. But to put on, you know, a match that for me just barely scraped into three and a, three and a half stars. I mean, I thought that was a pretty underwhelming match versus my expectations for it. Um, I thought for sure that they would have done like a 25 minute match, you know, some along those lines and let Daniel Garcia get really close and, um, but have MJF escape and survive. Um, and instead it was just, uh, 12 minutes, uh, a lot of, you know, shtick at the beginning, pretty good segment. And, you know, afterwards on the second, uh, after the commercial break, I should say, uh, and then just, uh, you know, Garcia does what he does often, which is goes too far back in the Dragon Tamer and, uh, you know, got reversed into MGF's move and loses. Um, but, you know, three and a half stars isn't shit either. So, like, you know, but, but it really should have been better. Um, I really didn't have a problem with the way Garcia lost the match. I didn't have they, that, no. That they did a really good job of building up the arm and... Uh, than just uh, tapping out to an arm bar. And Taz even made the comment, like, there's nothing wrong with tapping out to an arm bar. If they got yeah. you, they got you. It happens. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did have an issue with that. I, it was just the vibes of the match were a letdown after, you know, you get all these promises of, like, a breakout performance that wasn't there. Um, and the bigger issue, I have to say, on the show... Um, uh, though I don't think I have as big of an issue as other people, but I... And it's still not like hooting and hollering over it is the debut of Mariah May. Um, I'll ask how you felt about it here in a second, but I'll get my shit in first. Uh, basically, I thought that she was, uh, I don't know, I, I the whole Tony verse doesn't work for me largely. And I'm saying that as like a classic movies guy. Uh, I've seen All About Eve, the movie, it's you know, basically ripping off. Um, and uh, I love it, it's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that she's got to fill that spot to like kind of steal all of Tony's stuff down the road. Uh, that's going to be the storyline, you assume. Um, but I just it, the way it came off, it came off, I don't know, subpar kind of mid. I think, I think part of the problem may be RJ City, who I enjoy on the YouTube show quite a bit. It's dumb humor, it works for me. Um, it's very deadpan, you know, I'm an idiot kind of stuff. Um, but I just don't think he really works great on the TV and the whole pairing of him with Tony Storm just adds more shtick to something that is extremely shtick heavy already. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm down that storyline. I know some people there, there's some diehards that really like it, but I just don't. Yeah, I think um, after what Tony Storm has previously done in her AEW run, which is be a damn fine professional wrestler, um, having her go like comedy gimmick basically and be the center of the women's division is, you know, not really better than, you know, just uninspiring heel group takes over the division and just feuds with a, you know, inconsistent group of baby faces to no real resolution that they did for like a year i thought the biggest issue with the mariah may debut is they didn't even keep her off camera they they had her on camera as rj city's introducing her yeah 
they minimized her debut in about every possible way. And I don't understand why. She's got a phenomenal look. Like she's tall, she's beautiful, she's blonde. She worked really well in stardom and kind of was a was a rising star. I don't know if she was ever gonna be anything get to the level like a Julia or anything like that. We have no idea of knowing and we hit, but her what six to eight month run was objectively great considering she was an unknown going in. Yeah. Like that's an impressive feat going into a company like stardom and showing yourself to be on that level. That's great. So you come into this company, obviously you're still a relative unknown in the worldwide scene, unless you're people like us, you present her like this and I can understand the story. This is Mickey James, Trish Stratus, 2004, 2005. That's, that's exactly what this is. She's going to be, be the obsessed fan who wanted to follow the same path. She's going to beat her for the title. And then where does Mariah may go from there? That to me is the intriguing question. What does Tony like have in plan for her? It does. He really believe in her that she can be a top star. Cause I'll tell you, she looks like a top star. She's got the physique. She's got the look. She's got the size. That She looks like one. But can she get to a point where she's going to be one? And working well in stardom is a great start. But this is also America. And there are certain elements of being an American professional wrestler that you just don't really utilize much in Japan. Working a live mic in front of crowds and the the television wrestling style you don't wrestle a television wrestling style in japan you just wrestle so there are things that she's going to have to learn and adapt to nobody knows if she can but nobody knows she can't there's a lot of variables with her and presenting her in this way when you know how much she grew and improved in a short time frame in arguably the best women's division in the world to present her like this, I thought it was a joke and a massive disservice because they could have made her look like a million bucks and they just didn't. They made her look like a, a dollar general can of grape crush. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was a disaster, but I mean, it's something to watch going forward. I thought um, May was fine considering, but they yeah. did her no favors. Yeah, they didn't really... Uh, do great there. AW is not really the best uh, debut company, if you think about it. No, um, you know this is exactly like Miro or uh, some of the other really bad ones. There have uh, been some great debuts, like Moxley's debut was an all-timer. Awesome. Eddie um, Kingston, Eddie Eddie Kingston's debut was during the pandemic, but when you look back on it, that was an all-timer. It just it didn't feel like it in the moment, but oh, I disagree. I think I, I had not seen Eddie Kingston before because I had not really watched the Indies prior mm-hmm. uh, to that. But like, uh, he, you have this to me, an unknown coming out and cutting a hell of a you know promo. But on... we knew he was coming. It wasn't like a, a surprise debut. Well, yeah, that, but it doesn't have to be a surprise dr- debut to to be like a success. I, you know. But I guess the difference is like I thought it was great, but you didn't get this feeling in the moment that you were watching something special you and maybe you did because of like you said your background with eddie kingston yeah or I, like your oath, yeah 
I knew of Eddie Kingston. I knew he had cut some great promos and I had watched some of them and I knew that he was going to be wrestling Cody in that TNT title match. But when you look at all the other pieces and other factors, like it's legendary in retrospect because of what's happened to Eddie Kingston, but it didn't feel like that in the moment. Sting debuting felt like that. That was John Moxley debuting felt like that. Um, you know what? Adam Copeland debuting even felt like that. Brian Danielson. Brian Danielson. Oh, being and in Adam Cole, the, right? Yeah. Being in that VOW suite for Adam Cole and Brian Danielson back to back. And then earlier in the, the night, Minoru Suzuki just randomly at second match of the show, Minoru Suzuki's music hits, and then he confronts Moxley. That was one of the best moments of that entire show. And that show was effing incredible. Like there have been some really good ones, but they have dropped the ball more yeah. often than not. And that's been extremely frustrating. Yeah. Just a definite space to watch here. Um, you know, maybe it'll be fine. Uh, we'll see. Um, I, uh, one thing I will say is as down as I have been on Tony storm, um, cause I feel like it's just too much stick, um, to like building to nothing really. Um, you know, like especially the first of the, uh, you know, uh, picture in picture, air quotes here, silent movie, which is just her like jogging in place and doing other improv exercises, um, which felt very directionless. I will say that uh, I thought her promo on Sheeta, where she, you know, explained why she's been doing this, which is to steal the spotlight from Sheeta because she just stole the title from her. Uh, you know, the, I'm not saying that's exactly a five star promo, uh, but it was something, you know, it's better than some other stuff in there. So I will give him credit for that. Um, but yeah, um, there's a couple of news notes. Uh, I want to drop anything else on the show that you want to add. I don't think so. Um, I do think that, uh, Tony Schiavone might be my, my favorite commentator in professional wrestling right now. He's just so much fun. And I think we have to talk about the sting squash. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I can't remember what they're called. Outrunners. That job team rocks. The outrunners. Oh. Yeah. They, they need to never get a push. <laughs> oh, they should job on every show until the end of time. And you know what? It's perfect against a guy like sting. Cause they look like job guys. Sting would have beaten their ass in 1987. In like, yeah. Oh, just great stuff. Um, give them a hundred thousand dollars a year. Just have them do one job every week on TV. Perfect, wonderful. No notes. Yeah, they're, they're great at being geeks. They're they're great, great at being jobbers. Yeah, um, I enjoy them. Just was happy to see the outrunners. Well, um, we got some some news notes. I'm going to drop, and then we can talk about the Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Um, three things I got. Uh, I didn't really dive deep for news this week. I just pulled what's on the uh, figure four uh, slash Wrestling Observer site. But first of all, um, there is a report that uh, from House of Wrestling that a high-level CW executive approached Tony Khan at the LA Forum in June 2022 about bringing Ring of Honor content to the network. Um he uh, basically, Tony Khan turned him down because 
he apparently doesn't want to really go whole hog on TV rights for Ring of Honor until AEW uh, has signed their next deal, uh, which is an interesting way to look at it, I think. Um, and not one I necessarily agree with. Um, I think that with um, WWE signing with a bunch of different places now, uh, with the CW, and... Um, you know, uh, assuming they'll stay on the USA Network family in some way, and maybe they'll go on, you know, if not Fox, which seems out of the question now. Um, you know, maybe they'll keep something on the uh, Fox Network uh, station. Um, you know, it feels like that they may be um, trying to block out AEW from some potential competitors. You know, some potential networks to sign with, I should say. That's very interesting. Um, honestly, I think it's always going to be Warner Brothers Discovery. I don't think they're leaving um, that conglomerate. And I think, especially when you talk about Tony, having never had discussions outside of Warner Brothers with Ring of Honor, and I think it's noteworthy that he was approached and he still said no. So to me, I, I think Warner Brothers, if they don't have something in place, they're going to really soon. That's that's my gut instinct. Tony is, he reminds me a little bit of myself. He's a loyal guy and he's going to be loyal to you as long as you are not screwing him over and you are loyal back. And I, I think that that's not a mistake. I think that's going to be a trend and Warner Brothers Discovery is going to keep AEW in my personal opinion. Uh, my concern with putting all those eggs in that basket is Warner Brothers Discovery is drastically cutting costs. Uh, just yesterday, it was announced that they had a completely finished Coyote versus Acme film um, based off of the old uh, Wiley Coyote cartoons that actually would have starred John Cena, amongst others. Um, and uh, they just announced they're going to shelve it and just get the tax credit for it and never release it. Um, and I, you know, that does not really make me feel like that's a company that I would want to tie my, my company's long-term financial future into uh, blindly. But, you know, Tony Khan has more information about their relationship. They do seem to have a very positive relationship and Warner Brothers Discovery seems to value what AEW brings to the table. Um, will they be able to get enough money to be profitable, let alone to be even more, you know, major league spenders? To be seen. You know, but I think there's some good reasons for hesitancy there um, just going forward. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. I think it's yeah. there's there's a lot of intrigue here as far as how things are going to kind of grow and develop. But I, I just I can't see them going off of Warner Brothers Discovery Television. It would be surprising. I, I agree. Um, I'm just more concerned that they're going to minimize their earnings than anything else. But to be seen. Uh, second news note. The Bunny has left AEW by uh, mutual release. Um, removed from the roster page and all that. Um, she has uh, only wrestled three times in AEW this calendar year. Uh, she did fracture an orbital bone uh, back in February. 
but you know, you one would presume that she was healthy and relatively ready to go, but just not going. Um, so we'll see where she ends up. Um, I would be willing to bet money that she returns to Impact. She had previously worked there prior to her AEW run as Allie, uh, and uh, wouldn't be a surprise to me. I will miss uh, the seemingly once a year Deathmatch Bunny appearance. Oh, Deathmatch Bunny. Deathmatch Bunny was good. Other than that, you know, not a great wrestler, but like, you know, average. Can't really like got him away to put her over strong, but could be worse. So, oh, and we've seen worse. Uh, oh, yeah, any other sure. news elements before we get into the meat of this show, Fred? Yes, one very funny to me news element. Uh, there was a match pulled from the October 20th. Uh, edition of Rampage. I don't know if you saw this, Tyler. I think it came out this morning. Where uh, they had planned and had announced Commander versus Metalik on that show, which could have been a fun 12-minute you know, match, I assume is what they were going to go for. That's a but, sicko match for us. Yeah, but that show ended up with only four matches. Or, I'm sorry, three matches instead of the usual four, because there was no Commander versus Metalik, because Metalik refused to do the J-O-B that's not working for her, him, Hermano. That's hilarious to me. Um, I know, right? And you know what? It's hilarious for two reasons. One, that Metalik wouldn't do the job when he's not even a contracted wrestler. And two, Commander was going to get a win. Yeah, finally. <laughs> um, and, and I think Metalik also refused to put over Vikingo at a GCW show, if I'm not mistaken. Um if I'm wrong on that, you know, my apologies. I'm not really, you know, going out of my way to be an idiot. It's just something that comes to me naturally. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was back in June. Um, but yeah, he now, I will say that he continued to work the uh, the collision uh, that weekend um, on the 21st, uh, where he jobbed to Angelico, uh, uh, at the Ring of Honor portion and then lost the next week. Um, to be seen if he, you know, stays around. What's very funny is, you know, despite this, um, on the 14th, they actually did a Ring of Honor taping where, um, Metalik lost a commander in less than five minutes. So was he unhappy about doing it twice? Was he unhappy about doing it on actual TV rather than the uh, uh, not particularly much used streaming service? Who knows? But yeah, uh, Metalik, uh, I don't know, man. If it was me and Metalik was like, I'm not doing the job I was, and I don't have him under contract. I have no real future commitments to him. I ain't bring him back. I wouldn't bring him back. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, you have a, I, I think he has a pretty hard ceiling as like a mid-card guy in AEW. I just can't imagine him going much higher. And uh, yeah. to have him refusing to put over, you know, someone higher in the pecking order, just, you know, wouldn't go for it. Not for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. But that is your AEW news for the week that I bothered to put together. Next week we'll have a more normal show, but I'm excited because me and Tyler here are going to talk about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. We're going to um, do a, a brief kind of synopsis because if, if you want like more in-depth stuff, I recommend you go to um, the Voices of Wrestling Patreon. Um, Voicesofwrestling.com slash Patreon, and there is a lot. There is 10-plus hours of great audio content 
and we are here to give you our takes on it. And Fred, I don't know where you want to start, but I'm thinking we should probably start with the AEW centric candidates. Makes sense to me. um, Well, let's just do it here. Um, U.S. Modern Canada. Let's start with the Young Bucks. Um, First year on the ballot. They have a very interesting case because they their drawing power is a very unique discussion because they are like the first real modern candidate to have a drawing record that is heavy influence based and heavy merchandise sales. Because uh, the one stat I heard was in a four month period with hot topic, which if you ever go to a mall, you know what a hot topic is. They sold like 440,000 t-shirts in a four month period. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. They were uh, for, for a group not affiliated with WWE and free AEW when there was no real major competition in the United States, they moved a lot of merchandise in the United States, um, which was impressive because they were primarily working like Mm -hmm. second matches on new Japan, because that's just where they would slot the junior heavyweight tag titles uh like every show um and uh ring of honor and ring of honor was what it was at that point in time which is you know a national promotion that is not sniffing it uh wwe for the most part so yeah and i think the other interesting aspect of their candidacy is their work and we know that in our opinion, and I think you share the same thing, Young Bucks are the greatest tag team of all time. They have the highest peak and they have one of the longest um, longevities of any tag team. They they just have everything. But at the end of the day, when you look at their work rate case, there are a lot of people that hate their work call them things like spot monkeys and they don't have like, they don't tell stories. And then because of that, Matt Jackson sold his back for about six years. And I'm just, I'm so intrigued by their case. And I know you've been following along with uh, the public ballots and it looks, looks like they're hovering right around that 60% last check. What's your take on the Bucks here? Uh, well, I am a voter, um, and I have my public uh, my ballot out. In, on let my it be known that I'm not a voter only because of Fred. It is his fault. Yes, I emailed Dave Meltzer and said, uh, "Don't give this jabron a uh, ballot, please." Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I of course vote in the modern U.S. slash Canada region. And just so everyone's on the same page, uh, when you get your ballot. Um, you, you know, there's a little bit about what you should be voting on. Now, people love adding their own criteria because they're just, I don't know, unique snowflakes. I don't know. It's bizarre to me. Uh, but the criteria as stated on the ballot is it's a combination of drawing power, being a great in-ring performer, or excelling in one's field in pro wrestling, as well as having historical significance in a positive manner. A candidate should have either have something to offer in all three categories or be someone so outstanding in one or two of those categories that they deserve inclusion. Uh, to me, the Young Bucks were the easiest vote for me on my ballot as a yes. Uh, to me, they um, 
you know, we'll go to drawing power first. Maybe the weakest part of their candidacy, but they do have drawing power. They uh, they drew meaningfully in Ring of Honor, giving them their biggest year ever. You know, right before AEW became a thing, um, they were their presence was a key factor in AEW being launched. Which, while I guess you could argue is not exactly direct drawing, I think the fact that you opened a major league you know professional wrestling company uh that's on the level to be on national cable in a featured slot on a major station from day one is pretty damn meaningful um i do think AEW might have happened if the bucks and only the bucks didn't sign but i think they were a major factor in it being formed in the first place um and you know again we go back to the merchandise sales those are they had easily the most, you know, widely distributed best-selling T-shirt. I'd have to think since, uh, like, the Austin three sixteen slash NWO days. I- I'd be shocked if anything has even sniffed that since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are all these jokes early on that AEW is just a T-shirt company um, before they really properly launched with a full-time schedule. Um, and you know, those T-shirts were largely because of the Young Bucks and. You know, I think that that's got to be a major feather in their cap that they were, you know, just let alone the the hot topic deal that they were able to get so popular on their own and through BTE on YouTube that they got their shirts distributed in a national, you know, retail chain in the malls uh, and sold at a very high level. And that 400 plus uh, thousand uh, figure you mentioned doesn't even account for like, you know, sales from other avenues either. So... I think that is all very mm-hmm. strong in their fact, uh, case. I think unless you're someone who, you know, freaks out if someone does a super <clears throat> kick three times, um, super kick party, super they, kick. They're they're obviously one of the best in ring tag teams of all time. Um, and what kind of sets them apart from the majority of other candidates is the longevity of their careers. Uh, because really, if you do go over pro wrestling in the past 30 or 40 years, the number of tag teams that were together as long as them is small. Um, you know, we get um, the Midnight Express, I think, are obviously among the best teams ever, the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, and I think at this point, the Young Bucks have been a thing longer than um, certainly the, I want to say the Rock and Roll Express, I think, by the time that they you know, turned Robert Gibson heel and broke up the team in WCW because they had really good ideas. Um, that, you know, that's still like a couple years short of what the, the Bucks have done. Uh, I believe the Bucks have won the Observer Best Tag Team Award seven times by now. Um, they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're fantastic in rink performers. Um, and you can go up and down the list of all the different matches they've had and all the different companies. And, uh, you know, I think they're obviously a strong work rate candidate, if you will. And then you get down to, uh, historical significance. And we have already mentioned the formation of AEW and the role they played in that. Uh, but they also, um, didn't exactly invent independent wrestlers making money off the t-shirts that goes to Cole Cabana, um, like really being successful at it, I guess, I guess I should say, um, but they definitely, um, 
popularized it then perfected it dare i say and made a lot of money on their own working their own schedule in a the period that it was the hardest ever arguably to do that um so i think that's worth something um they played a key role in the popularization of bullet club uh which is played a key role in new japan expanding and becoming a global company and not just uh a company primarily for Japanese fans with a few like extremely hardcore nerds in the U S watching. Um, yeah, I, I just think that they're an easy. Yes. Um, can they be kind of annoying? Yeah, sure. Um, can they be, uh, you know, sometimes I, I can't exactly say the past six months have been peak young buck work. Um, but like I, I just don't buy into the natives on them really in in grand in any kind of like meaningful amount that would make me not vote for them. Because I am it the most distinguished voter in the history of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, because I don't have a ballot, I would vote for them. Like I, I just even if you don't uh, like think that their work is great, uh I think that's like a misconception for me. Because it, work is um, incredibly objective, but it's also subjective. And you can just go to Cage Match and look at their data and look at how the like wrestling fans in general view the Young Bucks and how they view their work at, at such a high level. And I think you can use that data to help make it subjective instead of just objective. And the Bucks are excellent. They have multiple matches of the year in multiple uh, distinguished polls, uh, both Voice of Wrestling and uh, I, I don't know if they have one with the Wrestling Observer Newsletter match of the year, but I know that they have some high finishes, especially with um, the matches with Golden Lovers and then um, Hangman Page and Kenny Omega. That one might have been the match of the year with, with the Wrestling I am Observer. I'm checking right now. Um, but you look at the subjective stuff where their matches rank highly and in platforms that are relatively trusted. Um, and especially like now cage match has kind of turned into an, not a joke, but you get what I'm saying. And uh, they, won, they won in 2020 for the match against the uh, uh, Omega and page. That was in 2020. Yep. Oh yeah, that was. And then, oh, and they also won in twenty twenty one for uh, steel cage match against the Lucha Bros. So there you God, go. God, that match was great. I love that <laughs> was. That was so cool to be live for. Um, yeah, it's one of those things. You look at the subjective stuff. They are Hall of Famers, and even if you don't like them and you think they're killing the business with their damn super kicks, they're great. They're subjectively great, and. If you don't believe so, I, my personal opinion, if you think they're bad or they're killing the business per se, like it was kind of the running joke for years, you have an inherent bias and you haven't opened your mind to actually looking at their candidacy with a, with a clear lens. And I think they're slam dunks. I really do. Uh, I think that they're probably the easiest new candidate on the ballot since Okada. Um, which I, I can't think of, you know, it's only been a couple of years, obviously. So that's not like the, some grand statement, but all the same, you know, 
I can't think of anyone that's been on that on their first time was like clearly to me a yes vote uh, to the level that they are. Mm-hmm. It's I I just don't understand um, not having it. It's I don't know that they're going to get in this time. Um, that they are. Um, let me make sure. Let me pull up the tracker real quick. But last time I checked, they were hovering around sixty-three uh, percent of the uh, balloting. I do believe, um, and you need sixty percent to get in. Um, all right, this is through sixty votes. The Young Bucks are at sixty-four point forty-one percent. My concern with them getting in, uh, and I think they will eventually. So I'm not like freaked out about it, but. Uh, voters love to do this thing where if you are still in your career, despite your being eligible to be on the ballot, um, that they'll just say that they don't vote for active candidates and then move on. Um, I think that's a terribly dumb way to go about it. <laughs> um, I think that if you, if you, once you reach a, a level of being a Hall of Famer, like short of pulling a Benoit or something along those lines. I don't think you can really lose it, lose that status. Um, and we'll get to a discussion about a guy who has not lost his status, in my opinion, uh, despite some uh, recent controversies. Um, but yeah, I, I just wish people would just vote for people when they thought they became a Hall of Famer. Um, but there's, and then you add in the uh, the fact that like the Bucks have become a centerpiece of the whole um you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction against AEW um, from some uh, cornhold people, um, cornanons. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I'm not exactly positive they're going to cross the threshold, but I think they probably will in the relatively near future. Yeah, let's, let's take a look at uh, a few other candidates here. Um, the two that stand out here, and I think we can kind of group them together because I think their candidacies are relatively similar, especially because they intertwined so much earlier in their careers. The Hardy Boys and Edge. Okay. Um, I think this is Edge's, what, like fifth year on the ballot, something like that. And the Hardy Boys, I think this is their second because of the tag team element that was added in by Dave a couple years ago. But... I really don't see either of these as strong candidates. I did not vote for either of them. Uh, Edge is on his 15th year on the ballot. I could see a better case for Edge than I could the Hardys. I would actually go the other way myself, I think. But Edge had a legit top run that did good business in WWE. Now, he wasn't necessarily the most over guy, but that series with Cena was phenomenal. And he's... He was, selling, he was selling tickets, and the run was short. And then he did the stuff, the tag team stuff with Orton, rated RKO. That was actually relatively entertaining for the time, but I wouldn't necessarily use that as like the linchpin to his Hall of Fame candidacy. But the having his career cut short, and I think it was 2011 with the the neck injury, just really puts any kind of damper on him actually making it. 
Yeah, that lost time does hurt. Uh, and I don't think his return has exactly been Hall of Fame level in WWE. And, you know, he's done all right in AEW so far, but it's way too early for that to be any kind of uh, Hall of Fame level. Uh, but, you know, right now he is on the public ballot, balloting 8.47%, which would drop him off the ballot. Now, the th- key thing with him is that historically he has done well, but much better on the um, on the uh private ballots the ones that don't get put out publicly um so i think he'll just uh he'll probably hit like 25 or 30 percent and stick around on the ballot another year oh hungy cat's here um, hungy cat has done a run-in um lahiha del hungy um <laughs> and the hardys are in the same boat they also do much better on the the private ballots than the uh ones that people share publicly um it's because they don't want people to know that they voted for the hardy boys <laughs> No offense to the Hardy Boys they, in their era, but you got to remember the Hardy Boys is a relatively short run. It was what? Like they be, started becoming job guys in like 97, 98 WWF. Yeah. And then they had the, the the legendary TLC matches with the Dudley Boys and Edge and Christian. And then they split in like, I think it was 2002. And then you got Matt Hardy version 2.0. And Then they kind of did a reincarnation of the run, like on the Indies, uh, ROH, TNA, and then they went back to WWE. But it's not like that they were this massively pushed act for this long, long period of time. I think it's it's more of a nostalgia thing, and people who loved those revolutionary TLC matches, and I think that's that itself is one of their stronger cases because you can argue, hey, the influence on the ladder match and making and popularizing it. Because like like Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon wasn't the first. That was the first one that became huge. And then you had the TLC matches, which added another element. And you could argue that was kind of the genesis for Money in the Bank, the multiple-person ladder match. And I just don't see they have a strong work rate um, uh, argument, nor do I think they have a strong argument for being like a draw yeah i i will say that um some aspects of the career are you know uh probably underrated they're they're reforming in wwe around 2007 was uh went well um for that time period and then i do think the broken hardies uh was that could be a little underrated in terms of its success um uh you know it was probably the biggest thing that happened in impact for quite a while um definitely in the post uh spike period um now you can argue that maybe the uh cinematic matches are a net negative on the industry i just don't think it's like that impactful i really Um, don't think you should discredit how good the the final deletion was because there have been a lot of bad cinematic matches and as an overall um, theme cinematic matches aren't great. The broken the broken universe final deletion was excellent. It was perfect. Yeah, um, I I do think that they uh, you know they did more than uh, they may initially be credit credited for. Um, they had a short run in Ring of Honor where they drew pretty well with the uh, Young Bucks. Um, and then um, 
you know, a short return to WWE and then the AEW run where they were going to win the tag belts until uh, Jeff uh, got a DUI. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think they have a, you know, reasonable case. Um, I definitely don't think that they're like obvious picks, but I don't think them getting inducted would be like bad for the Hall of Fame or anything. They just, you know, I, I might vote for them, but you know, at some point down the road, depending on what happens with the balloting, but you know, this year for the moderns, uh, US slash Canada, you're limited to five candidates and, um, they would definitely not make my top five. And Edge is in the same situation. I think uh, he did well with that uh, Jeff Hardy feud. Um, and, you know, for a couple of years there, he was a real high-level uh, main eventer in WWE. Um, you know, and if you look at my uh, award shares tallies for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, Edge is 32nd all-time, going back to the start of the Observer, uh, I think with these awards in 83, uh, Edge is 32nd all time in terms of uh, award shares, which puts which puts him right between uh, Akira Hokuto and uh, Triple H. And I don't know, man. That's you know pretty good company. Um, I think he gets dismissed a little too easily, but again, he is. I did not vote for him this year. Um, he's someone I have. I think I've considered him more than the Hardys in the past. Uh, but just, you know, again, not a, uh, to me, a clear cut Hall of Famer. And also, you know, there's some negatives there, and I can see why you wouldn't vote for him. Yeah. Where do you want to go from here, Fred? Because I believe that's all the AEW really Jason candidates that are on the ballot this year. You are incorrect, sir. There's two, two, uh, very much AEW connected. Let's go with a shorter um, conversation with John Moxley. Oh, that's right. I'm an idiot. Yeah, well, we knew that. Um, so, yes, John Moxley uh, is on the ballot again. He had previously been on there and fallen off. Um, I forget the exact year of that, but um, he has been put back on primarily because he won the Luthez MVP award in 2022 for the second time in his career. Uh, now, it's important to note that this is a, here is the list. Uh, hopefully, I won't miss anyone. Of um, two-time winners, two-plus-time winners of the uh, Luthez slash Ric Flair award. Uh, of course, you have Ric Flair winning it uh, seven times, eight times, I do believe. Um, Harley Race won in eighty and eighty-one. Uh, we have ourselves uh, Mitsuhara Misawa uh, winning in ninety-five, ninety-seven, ninety-nine. Uh, Kenta Kobashi won in 03, 04, and ninety-six. Um, John Cena won in 07 and ten. Chris Jericho won in 08 and 09. Uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi won in 2011 through 2013. AJ Styles in 2015, 2016. And uh, Kenny Omega in 2018 and 2021. And every single one of those men, and I don't believe I missed any multiple winners, uh, is in the Hall of Fame. And John Moxley joined them last year, winning in 2022, after previously winning the 2020 year. Um, and... You know, uh, now, does that mean that he is automatically a Hall of Famer? No, um, I don't think so. Because, it, you know, there's always going to be someone that's the weakest within a class. But I think he has had such a great run in AEW that I voted for him. 
Uh, he, that's now a um, four-year period, I do believe, where he's really wrestled at a, at a Hall of Fame level. And I think I give him credit for another year at what I think is the Hall of Fame level for his run with the Shield. Um, and I don't think he's a slam dunk candidate. And honestly, in the past day or two, I've been wondering if I should have voted for another candidate over him. But he was, he did make the bottom of my ballot, and I think he is, you know, at the Hall of Fame level at this point in time in his career. I understand voting for him. Honestly, I wouldn't because he's currently on that defining run. And yeah. I understand if you don't want to vote for somebody who is currently wrestling, but I think it needs to come with that caveat that the defining run of their career or like is currently happening. And that's the deal with Moxley. He's a two-time uh, Flair Thez winner, but he's also in the midst of that run. Right. Whereas the Bucks, so much of their case is influence-based and mm-hmm. that, that unique element of drawing where that's already happened. So when you pair it with the work rate, it makes it a little easier to be like, okay, I can put them in because they're not in the midst of that. That already happened. It's already done. Yeah. Where I think Moxley will get in and should get in, but I want to make sure that this plays out the way we think it's going to before I do put him in. And because he's in the midst of that actual run, like Shinsuke went in, he had already done so much. And I know by many, he's viewed as the weakest candidate or the weakest Hall of Famer. I, I, I disagree. That I think he, he deserves it. I, I think he deserves it too, because of so much when he got in, so much of what he had like what he had already done, it wasn't like he was in the midst of this all-time run. He made the Intercontinental title worth something in New Japan. He was a multi-time IWGP title holder. Had that had those great matches with Tanahashi and like elevated helped was part of the process of elevating Okada, especially within chaos. All of that matters, and all of that yeah. already happened by the time he went to WWE. WWE is just a paycheck. It's, it's like, to me, that doesn't, that doesn't matter for his Hall of Fame case. No. And that, that's kind of where I sit there. Now, when you look at Moxley, he's in the midst of this phenomenal run. I want to see that run play out. And then I want to make sure it doesn't end in a dud. As long as it doesn't end in a dud and it just ends in a, a fine way at worst, I'm putting him in the Hall of Fame, but I want to see his defining run play out before I put him there. I think that's fair. Uh, my take on that whole, you know, voting for present day guys, for active guys, is um, if they were to retire today, do I think they've accomplished enough? Um, and, you know, you can say, well, what if they do something really bad down the road? And I think if you look at what the what is in the Observer Hall of Fame? Um, I don't think that's really something that happens. There's the argument O.J. Simpson still ran for all those yards, right? And I and, think and you that can't really mean something. You can't really like vote for someone and be like, well, if they turn into a serial killer, this could be a problem. Like that's just insane thinking, you know. Um, and the the kind of um the kind of tarnishing to that someone would have to bring to undo a strong hall of fame argument to me is uh, 
on such a high level that it's basically not even worth considering because it, it would have to be so criminal or so destructive that it's really unforeseen. Um, and like one of those like one in a thousand kind of odds things, you know. Um, so to me, Moxley, I think, has accomplished enough where he's a Hall of Famer. Um, and that's why I feel like he's worthy of a vote at this point in time. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say he's an obvious vote. I can see why people would disagree with my my argument. Um, but I think he's been a high-level worker for several years now, and I think he's been um, a major draw in AEW um, as the Hungry Cat continues to disagree with the time change uh, when it comes to dinner. Um, so for me, I voted for him. Uh, the other candidate with AEW Connections is CM Punk. Tyler and um, you know, very controversial guy, especially after the last year. And uh, I voted for him. Um, I thought that he was. I, th- I, I honestly thought even before his AEW run that he had a Hall of Fame career. Um, and I think he's been very influential in that he went into WWE right in the middle of there. Every guy still got to be like a massive human being to be a draw. And he went in as a smaller guy and kind of helped set the stage for them to kind of modernize their view of what a top star can be and help pave the way for guys like Daniel Bryan, you know, there or uh, Seth Rollins to um, be Hall of Famers um, without being, you know, the stereotypical WWE, you know, chunk of granite guy. Um, I think he's one of the best promos in wrestling history. Um, I think he's uh, been a very successful draw, and I think what he did in AEW was proof positive of that. And, you know, I think all these factors point to him being a pretty clear Hall of Famer. Fred, do you want some breaking news? Oh, yeah, sure. The Big Ten is expected to suspend Jim Harbaugh for the next three game days. Oh, he, can, okay. he can coach throughout the week, but he cannot be on the sidelines. Wow. Yeah, that's that's going to be big because that's Penn State and Ohio State. It's yeah. not enough in punishment. True, but I don't know. I you know I think either you do something to keep them out of the Big Ten championship game, or else you you know aren't really doing anything <laughs> with that whole story. Um, you know, maybe they'll get upset, but I don't, also don't think that like it's going to make a meaningful impact on uh, Ohio state's chances of winning. It's interesting. Cause I heard somebody make the argument and I think it works that Jim Harbaugh is probably less impactful to his team on Saturdays than somebody like a Lincoln Riley. Yeah. Who's a play caller. Yeah. Like, Harbaugh isn't exactly in that, like, you know, classic, uh, you know, the, the genius. He's a, he's a CEO guy. type. Yeah. And uh, I don't think he needs to be there on Saturday for them to win. He he could just like take game days off as a as a fact of matter. And I think that very little changes with Michigan's success rate or you know success uh, history under him. But that's just my take. That may be completely wrong. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about a few other candidates, and then we got to get out of here. Sure. Yeah. Who do you want to talk about? Because there's a lot of interesting ones on this ballot. 
one person that I didn't vote for and that I kind of regret it is uh, Becky Lynch. Um, Whoa, you regret it? I regret not voting for her. And, you know, Ethan Explain. Tyler... Well, yeah, uh, I'm not going to just like move on to the next cat <laughs> and be like, that's my take. Thanks for listening. Um, uh, no, so, you know, looking at the history of women's wrestling in North America, specifically the United States, and we'll include Canada in that because they're kind of basically the same market even back in the territory days. Uh, in terms of serious professional wrestlers, it was Mildred Burke. Uh, and then June Byers after her for several years. Um, and then once uh, June Byers gets in a car wreck and her career is essentially over, uh, the NWA Women's Championship goes to the fabulous Moolah. And Moolah becomes the predominant force in women's wrestling in the U.S. And she, along with like societal changes of the late 50s, um, basically kills women's wrestling as a serious thing or as a drawing thing in the United States. They, uh, they got shoved into the mid card comedy slot and Mula, who was never a good worker, uh, was all too happy to go along with that. And, um, and it was like that for the longest time in the U S uh, for literally decades. Um, you know, Moolah and her crew were around forever, and there were a couple, cha- you know, tries by Vince McMahon to um, become, uh, to, you know, to relaunch women's wrestling as a legit drawing thing. Uh, he tried with Wendy Richter, but she just wasn't successful at that level. Uh, he tried with Alundra Blaze. Uh, she wasn't successful at that level, and there were various factors there. I mean, with uh, Richter, basically all she had to play opposite of were Moolah trainees. Um, you know, uh, like the glamour girls, Leilani Kai and uh, Judy. Um, oh, I forgot her last name, but you know, who were up there in years and not exactly super workers or anything. And then with Blaze, when she was brought into the WWF, um, the they primarily had to bring in Japanese women, and of course, their you know commitments were primarily in Japan, as you would imagine. Uh, so WWF didn't really other have people and they, you know, he gave up. Um, and then we got the, you know, the attitude era where women were treated with like objects, um, for several years. Um, and then, uh, we had ourselves, you know, the divas era, which was not much better. We had John Lordnitis uh, looking in lingerie catalogs for models to hire. Uh, we had women being told to not work like the guys because, uh, that's not their job. And, uh, we finally had the four horsewomen in, um, in NXT and they really did prison and sea change. So Charlotte, Bailey, Sasha, and, uh, Becky. And, um, of those four, the one who has had the most success as a draw is Becky Lynch. And she became the top star in WWE um, in 2019, uh, regardless of gender. It wasn't just like she's the top woman. She was their number one draw. Um, Now, that wasn't exactly the best year in WWE's history, but I think it is very historically significant that Becky Lynch did something that no woman has been able to do for 60 years, a literal lifetime. Um, and no matter what goes forward, no matter what happens from this point forward, you can't take that away from her. Um, 
And if, you know, you can say, well, maybe they'll end up like undoing the women's revolution and going back to bra and panties matches. Yeah, but you don't know that. And even if it does, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So to me, historically, she has a very strong case. I think that she gave herself a boost this year uh, by being a meaningful draw for NXT. Um, I think she really did boost their ratings and everything. Um, and made them, um, a like they were a disaster last year in, in ratings and everything. Um, and she came in, um, was the biggest star assigned to that brand for a while, and I think really helped revitalize that brand. And she also helped make Tiffany Stratton the big star, I think, or helped her put her on her path to that. Um, and I think you know, Becky is a strong candidate. Um, and she's unique. I think you have to evaluate her a little different than, you know, Roman Reigns, for example. I'm not a Roman Reigns voter right now because I think he had too many years of failure and not enough years of success. And, um, you know, I can't really give him like a full year's credit for this year when he has less than 10 matches, you know, and isn't on TV every week. And a lot of his appearances are just sitting in a lazy boy, you know, backstage. Uh, but, Becky Lynch has, I think, a lot of historical significance that Roman Reigns doesn't. And I think she has a lot of historical significance that a large majority of the other candidates don't have. Um, and I think that's the basis of her candidacy. And I think she, I hope that she will go in in the future and I will probably vote for her next year. I got a take. Becky Lynch is a Kiritawe. She is uh, the least. She is the least important member of the four horsewomen. Well, that's wrong. <laughs> She's the worst. Uh, you could argue she was the worst work, work, worker of them until Bailey's knees imploded. But I think she is easily the most important of them. Hey, state your case. I don't buy it. She's the one that became the top star in the company. She's for the one... for about three four months, and her title ring completely flopped because it didn't draw. I mean, I would argue that it was longer than that. I'd say it was more like nine months, and I, WWE as a whole was floundering at that point in time. Uh, did, yeah, she but, did but not listen out was, of it. She was the big program, it, and not only that, they shoehorned the the woman who they believe is their biggest star into her match because they didn't believe it was enough of a draw. Well, yeah, and, WWE and then, was fucking up left and right at that period. You know, I don't no, think that's really. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to argue that, but it it's no matter how you spin it, it's a strike against her case. And I don't think she's that great of a worker. I think she's the I'll third best worker. I, I think she's the third best worker in, in her group at best, and that that all depends on how you feel about Charlotte. Because when Charlotte's on, fair. she's great, but when she's off, it's abysmal. I just I don't think there's enough of a historical significance with Becky Lynch where I think if you take out Becky Lynch and insert another capable women's worker into that spot, I don't think much changes. I really don't. And to I me, disagree. that like who are the, the important ones? Charlotte, Sasha. Mm-hmm. Far and away the most important. Bailey mm-hmm. came up later, but she was treated as much more of a big deal than Becky ever was until she organically became the man because she got busted open. Yeah, she did that. You know, you give people credit for what they did, and I think... No, she, she deserves credit for it, but until then, we're giving her this credit 
for this women's revolution piece. And I'm saying, I think it could have gone on without her. But it didn't. And she got way more over than any of the others. Uh, her peak is she way She did not beyond. get more over than Sasha. Yes, Sasha, Sasha was a massive ratings mover for years. Yeah, but Becky was, you know, a mania main eventer. She, you know, and you can argue that, well, yeah, they decided to put Charlotte in there. That's because that was at the, the absolute peak of Vince McMahon as a shot booker. Uh, so I feel like saying, you know, like like this would be like trying to undermine the Brian Danielson case by saying, yeah, but he was the flying goat for years in WWE. And it's like, yeah, but that's, you know, kind of overlooking that Brian Danielson has a larger and greater resume. I will. But then it but in that instance, Fred, you're talking about a nine month period where in your mind she was the biggest star in the company, which which is a fair argument. Mm-hmm. But as a woman, her. And I understand the historical significance of that. I That's just don't think it's a, I don't think it's enough to put her in the Hall of Fame. I, I just don't. I, I that, understand. I that's understand. a subjective thing, and I can understand yeah. that, that that's probably just where we differ. Yeah, and that's it. I, and I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna take you to the coals like 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 when you say that she was not the biggest star of the four, I think that's just categorically false. Now Sasha is a huge star, and if she's able to do more. I think that uh, it'd be a very interesting case for her. I will say that my that when it comes to peak, um, it was Becky for sure. Now Becky, I think when she 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 wasted some time after her pregnancy. I fully agree with that. Um, when she came back as a heel, made no ever loving sense to me. I think the story was that it was supposed to be her idea. Um, I don't get it. You know, I, I mean, I can see how if you're a performer, you probably want to be able to do be, do heel stuff and think that's more fun and whatever. But it's like it was just completely self defeating and nonsensical to me. Um, so she lost time there, and that cost her about a year. Uh, I do think 2023 was a good year for her case, not a great year, but a good year for her case. Uh, I think that what she did on NXT is noteworthy. I think it's uh, meaningful, and I think it added to her case. But yeah, I, I'm voting off of historical importance. I think her historical importance is she's the most important woman's wrestler in the past 60 years. You literally have to go back to June Byers uh, in terms of the U.S. I'm not, you know, including J- Japan in that statement or anything. Um, and like, you know, you have people voting for Trish Stratus, you know, uh, enough to keep her on the ballot somehow. And if they're not also voting for Becky Lynch, then I legitimately don't know what they're doing because Trish was a career mid Carter and, you know, victim of circumstance and all that. Sure. But like, you know, it's just not comparable what the two did. Uh, Trish made it at a raw Becky Lynch, you know, made it at a WrestleMania as the feature point of that. I mean, I, I, I agree that I don't think Trish is all a famer. I think what she did for women's wrestling was objectively good, but I don't think there's any kind of historical significance where she needs to be in the hall of fame. I agree. Now we talk about Becky being kind of the focal point of that WrestleMania. Well, let's, let's not kid ourselves. Ronda Rousey was the focal point of that WrestleMania. They built that around her and they knew she was leaving the company so she could go um, start a family. Mm-hmm. And that, that was well known at the time. And they could have had, Anybody capable take the the belt off of her. They got the organic thing with Becky, which was great. She deserves credit for it. I just don't think that there is this historical significance argument, where, like in comparison to 
like any like other historical significance. It's like if you were to put her up against how historically significant like the Young Bucks are, I just don't think there's even close to a semblance of a case. It's a and different case. It's it a is a it's case. a different case, but I don't think Becky has enough. Now, if you give her a few more years and she shows that hey, this little NXT run wasn't a fluke and she continues to be a draw and she continues to build and build and build, I think adding that historical significance element is going to put her over the top. Right now, I if you were to put Sasha Banks on the ballot, I'd feel more comfortable voting Sasha Banks. I'd f- even feel more comfortable even with the fact that it's kind of just kayfabe bullshit to Charlotte Flair's 14 t- world titles. I-, I would consider putting her in over Becky Lynch. No. I'm not putting no. Becky Lynch in, and I need more. I, I don't I, think that her historical significance is enough. And I think she's a Kira Tawai. She's the least important of the four. That's, I strongly disagree with that statement, but I feel like we're going in circles here. So I think we're just going to move on. Uh, do you want me to go through my ballot or is there any, anyone else on here that you want to discuss? Um, I think we should talk about Roman Reigns for a minute. Oh uh, God. Okay. I, I don't think he's a, he's a viable hall of famer right now. Um, I, I don't understand the argument saying that he is. Because this bloodline thing. And I, I thought in their Hall of Fame audio, Joe Lanza had a phenomenal point that the ratings when he was on television to when he took like a four to six week hiatus stayed flat. Yeah. They, they, there was no impactful difference with Roman being off television. That's not, that doesn't make you look like more of a draw. You were forced into this spot. You didn't draw money. You weren't getting over. And then all of a sudden you have a a nine-month run with the bloodline, which has no direction and was really spearheaded by the brilliance of Sami Zayn. Like, I'm sorry. Roman doesn't have the back catalog of matches to lean back on as this all-time worker. He's a very capable worker. He can have a four-and-a-half-star match when he's with the right opponent. Like, he, the the series with AJ Styles not, not as a heel, great. not as a heel. Yeah, the series with AJ Styles was awesome. Like you put him with a great worker, he can deliver great matches. But and you look at WWE business, like business is good, but ratings consistently went down with him being pushed in the top spot. When he started getting his push, ratings were at like for Raw, they were getting five million plus viewers a week. Now they're getting 1.5. That that's you can attribute a lot of that to him being on top. And it's it's not as cut and dry as that. No, but it's not. He I don't think he has a real case. Now, the bloodline stuff has been very good and very over, and it has been a ratings mover. SmackDown ratings went up upwards of 10 to 20% when the bloodline stuff started getting hot. But are we really going to just ignore seven years of adjunct failure in the top spot because he had nine months of really good success? That doesn't mean that the success is completely meaningless, but you have to take everything into account. This isn't a singular season MVP. This is a Hall of Fame case. Roman Reigns, to me, there is no real data point that says he's a Hall of Famer. Because WWE is making money. Roman Reigns is not the one making WWE money. Whereas Hulk Hogan was the one making WWF money in the mid-1980s. Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock 
were the ones making WWF money in the 1990s, early 2000s. Roman Reigns is not the catalyst to WWE making money. WWE's machine is making WWE money. And right now, outside of the bloodline stuff, there is no real draw in that company. The draw is the brand. And there's something to that. The, you could talk about somebody like somebody on the board who is instrumental in making the brand the draw. And like, like we talk about uh, some of the office executives in Japan, like Sinshiro Takagi, about potentially being a Hall of Famer because of the stuff that they do behind the scenes. WWE's brand is the draw. There is not a draw on the on that roster outside of the the bloodline of the past. I don't know. I we can generously call it a year. I I, I don't get it with Roman Reigns. I really don't. I uh, I gave some thought to voting for him this year, but decided that no, I wasn't. Um, my take on him is similar to yours. I do give him credit for the Shield, the, the one year of the Shield as a real thing in the company. He deserves equal credit for it, just like Rollins and Moxley. I agree. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so that's one year. Uh, and I personally think that we start thinking about voting you when you get to like five, right? I think that's reasonable. Uh, I think by seven, it's like a very strong case, personally speaking. Um, so he gets, he's got one year there. Every year is the top baby face, uh, abject failure, I think. Uh, like, I don't think there is anything in there to really give him credit. Uh, he was a, a strong WWE main event style worker as a babyface, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not that's different from being like a Hall of Fame level worker. So uh, nothing in there really. Maybe it was the needle for me. Uh, he comes back as a heel in 2020. Uh, I think that the, I don't really see much with him initially, like as a heel upon his return. But I feel like you have to give him credit for 2022, for sure. I think that at that point, WWE metrics moved noticeably. And I think you have to give credit for that to uh, the Bloodline storyline. Um, I think that they still are strong enough to win in 2023, where he gets some credit there. But I will say that WWE really screwed the pooch by having three. Uh, in fact, if I go back to Drew McIntyre, four viable guys to beat him. And a company that historically has a huge problem building baby faces. Huge problem uh, mm-hmm. over the past two decades. But has really struggled to do that. Um, they had four over baby faces that were viable candidates to beat Roman Reigns, get the rub from that, and become main events. But that's not against Roman Reigns. So I can't really discredit them for that. Um, but I do think that 2023, even if the numbers are relatively good, you can't give him credit for wrestling. Like you can't give him full credit for the year because he wrestled less than 10 times. He's not on TV. Half the show is at a minimum. I, you know, and also to me um, for all the, the praise that SmackDown got for its ratings, you know, I think he deserves some praise for that. Uh, but I also think you can't underestimate just the impact of being on network television uh, because that will you know, definitely increase your numbers. And I think, I think a knock against him is that Fox decided not just to not, you know, renew SmackDown. Uh, Like it wasn't like they lost a bidding war and like, oh, shucks. Like they were just outright. This is not worth the money to us. And I think that's pretty damning in a way. Um, So I'm at like 
two and a half years, give or take maybe three and a half, depending on how much credit I give him for 2021, which I think was the start of turning it around and all that, but not like a grand slam year all the same. Um, I just, I'm not there with him yet. If he continues to be meaningful as a main eventer uh, for two more, three more years, yeah, I might change my vote for him. I probably will at that point. If he if he is a successful draw for several more years, I think you have to. Uh, but I don't see an argument for him as a pure work rate candidate. I don't see... Because he was the third best worker in the Shield. Uh, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that did the high-impact spots. He wasn't exactly, you know, Rollins or Moxley, you know. Um, and I don't think he has much positive historical significance beyond just drawing. Like, there's nothing that he really did, I think, that you can give him credit on a historical basis uh, to the level, you know, again, to go back to the Bucks. I think they did some very interesting and very meaningful historical stuff, and Reigns was just a top guy in the top company uh, in largely monopolistic conditions. Um, it, It just doesn't move the needle for me. I can't vote for him yet. Talk to me in 2025. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. I think if this bloodline thing, or if he stays over as a meaningful draw for the next couple of years, I think there's a much stronger case for him yeah. because it's like being an adjunct failure as the top babyface does not mean he was always a failure as a worker and as a mm-hmm. wrestler. But we're talking about the Hall of Fame. We're not talking about how you want to build out your roster in TEW. Like, yeah, it's just a different conversation. And I, I couldn't vote for him. I really couldn't because there's just too much marring his case, and not there's not enough of the, on the positive variety. Yeah, and um, I just think uh, I not enough for me to vote for him. That's that's the primary thing for me. All right. Well, Fred, let's wrap this up. Let's hear your ballot for the Wrestling right, Observer so Hall of Fame. We have the different categories to vote in. Um, so here is whom I voted for and in what categories. In the historical performers era, uh, that's mainly North America, uh, U.S. and Canada, you could vote for up to eight candidates. I voted for eight candidates. I'm a big Hall of Fame guy. I voted for Jack and Jerry Briscoe, a legendary tag team. June Byers, I think uh, she deserves a lot of historical credit for what she was able to do as the second and last meaningful women's world champion in the U.S. Uh, I voted for the British Bulldogs, Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith. I thought that was a strong work rate candidate. Uh, that is probably one of my weaker candidates, though. So that They have a lot of historical significance, too. I think a lot of that can probably be contrib- uh, attributed to uh, Dynamite Kid, who is already in as a solo performer. But I think there's still some for the tag team as well. Uh, so I think that's probably the weakest of my votes for the historical performers era, and there's no guarantee that'll carry over next year. Uh, I voted for Argentina Rocket and Miguel Perez, who were a fantastic drawing tag team in the Northeast in the uh, 70s, if I recall correctly. Um, I voted for Junkyard Dog. Uh, late career of him was awful. Let's not kid ourselves, but being able to w- do what he did do in uh, mid South, primarily as a draw uh, with those huge shows in New Orleans and the surrounding areas, uh, especially as a black band in that area, that era, I think is very meaningful. Um, I voted for Kevin Carey and David Von Eric. Um, don't, I don't think, I think voters should not, 
work themselves up into a frenzy about like some mythical coding behind it only being there's three. Uh, the Von Eriks were hugely important in Dallas in the 80s, the mid 80s. Um, they had a several year period where they were just phenomenal draws. I think that's a clear Hall of Fame case to me. Uh, Sputnik Monroe, I voted for. Uh, he is credited with, um, you know, helping in segregation of the crowds of wrestling shows um, in a Jim Crow era. I think some people are trying to think about it a little too hard. We're like, well, what about the motivations for him? It does. I mean, I don't think it really matters. Frankly, he did the thing. Um, and I think historically that's really significant. I also think that's about the entirety of his case. So, you know, I can see why someone might not vote for him if they don't think it's that meaningful. But to me, I, I do. Uh, and then Johnny Rougeau, who was a huge draw in the uh, Montreal area and um, back in the 60s and 70s. And um, I think the number, he drew 5,000 people for his funeral, I think is the right number. Um, just that alone is a bonkers number. So, um, but I think he's deserving. We get to the uh, modern performers in U.S. and Canada where you can vote for up to five. I voted for the Young Bucks. Uh, CM Punk, uh, John Moxley. Uh, I also voted for the Briscoes, Mark and Jay Briscoe. Um, I think what they did as a tag team for a long period is uh, like, I think they're a great work rate um, team uh, candidacy. And I also think that they have uh, not a defining, but like, you know, a little bit in the tank for the historical uh, significance portion too just about what they did as a great tag team in an era that was pretty weak on those and then i voted for paul orndorff who um i think is a terribly underrated draw historically uh he drew as a title challenger against rick flair uh jerry lawler and uh hulk hogan and drew like was it sixty thousand? i think in toronto for the the big event i think is what they called it um against hogan um and also a very good worker so for his era. So I think he is deserving. Uh, we moved to Japan. I vote, You have a max of three candidates, and I voted for three of them. Uh, I voted for Tomohiro Ishii. Um, pure, you know, not purely work rate, but primarily work rate. He, I think he did some drawing and helped New Japan expand into the U.S. and England. He's um, a huge draw in the States. Yeah. Um, but he is just one of the best wrestlers I've ever seen. And um, I think he's well-deserving of a spot. Uh, Shingo Takagi, um, I think, is pretty similar to um, to uh, Ishii. Uh, gets credit for his Dragon Gate work. Um, and just another high, high-level wrestler, who I think deserves to be enshrined. And then Shima, who was not only a great wrestler, but also very important to Dragon Gate, which I think is a historically underrated promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I abstained from Mexico this year. I uh, The guys I voted for last year got in. So I just did not have the time to research this properly this year. Uh, may return to it next year. I also abstain in the rest of the world portion. And that leaves the non-wrestlers where uh, you can vote for uh, six people a maximum. And I maxed out there too. Um, my candidates I voted for were uh, Bobby Bruns. Uh, did a lot of things in his career, but most notable for training Ricky Dozan and helping start uh, that period of wrestling in Japan and really made it popular there. And I don't think, I think that's uh, by itself is Hall of Fame worthy, really. Um, Bobby Davis, 
is uh was kind of for a long time forgotten and uh, until like three years ago i had never heard of him but he was a manager in the u.s in the 60s that uh, both bobby heenan and jim Cornette give credit to as inspiration and like outright admit that they stole from him and uh i think that's a tremendous candidacy right there i think uh he should be one of the strongest candidates on this ballot period I voted for the Grand Wizard. I think he was a great drawing uh, manager up in the Northeast uh, in the 70s uh, WWWF. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Lou Albano uh, gets a lot more attention. And the, uh, oh God, I'm like, um, the third manager up there, I am blanking on him. And I apologize. I just, my brain went, my brain stopped working. Um, those two guys get more credit. Um, Freddie Blassie, classy Freddie Blassie, my God. Um, question do you think the fact that he's called the grand wizard is uh, hurting his candidacy at all maybe for people that don't know why he's called that but the the reason i mean it's thought that basically he took that name because he was a gay jewish man uh in a period where the ku klux klan was you know at a relative high watermark and took it as a uh as a fuck you to them so god that rules it does rule um (laughs) So, like, if you know this, and I believe that's the story, if I'm wrong, you know, I apologize. I'm definitely not trying to be an idiot on purpose. Uh, It's just, you know, like I said earlier, it just comes to me naturally. Um, But I think he's a, I I think he was a meaningful draw and a uh, strong candidate. Uh, I voted for Joe Higuchi in Japan, the referee. Um, I think ref should be in the Hall of Fame. And, um... Yeah, I, I'm not going to say he was like my strongest vote, but he had a long and meaningful career there and was well respected and everything. I think he should be in. Uh, Morris Siegel was a old timey promoter. Uh, I want to say for in Houston from the 20s and 30s, if I recall correctly. Um, I'm just doing this all off the top of my head, so apologies for any errors. But he, you know, it's kind of hard to find information on him. But what you know, he's typically talked about as a historically important guy and. I definitely think he's a better candidate than like Don Owen. I think he would not be, you know, there's several promoters. I think he's probably more important and better than, and, um, I, you know, it seems to me, uh, I'm kind of doing a standing on the shoulders of giants there thing. Uh, other people that are better informed than me are voting for him and they have good arguments. So I'm going along with it. And my last vote was Ted Turner. Um, I think he gets underplayed by some people. They're just like, oh, he only put him on TV. I mean, he made the decision time and time over and over again to support what became World Championship Wrestling um, and keep them on the air uh, in defiance of, like, basically regular calls from his underlings to cancel it because at that point in time, wrestling was thought to be embarrassing. But, uh, you know, it was a strong ratings draw for TBS in the 80s, and he kept it going. He greenlit Nitro. I think that's all positively historically significant. And um, he fought to keep it on the air, too. Yeah, yeah. It was his decision, and people were telling him not to, and he said, no, we're going to do this. I don't care. Um, As long as he had that power, he used that power to keep it on television, and he created a national promotion in what would have otherwise been a uh, time of monopoly for WWF. And um, I think that's a, a strong case to me. I, I And I think people just kind of, you know, a lot of the cases I hear against him, um, you know, are kind of, I, I find them overly dismissive of what he did do. Um, 
he's not Vince McMahon. He's not like Booker and promoter and doing all this stuff. He just was the money guy and the guy that controlled the TV station it was on and the guy. But importantly, he was the guy that said, we are keeping this going. We're keeping it at a, this level. And what he did was important to the business. I think so. Yeah. So I think he's a strong candidate, a stronger candidate than maybe some other people give him mm-hmm. credit for. Um, and yeah, that's my ballot. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, the Hall of Fame class will be announced, what, early January? Uh, if that. Um, I know voting closed on the... Um, the 8th. Just a, yeah, a couple of days ago. Um, I, you know, I'm looking forward to finding out when it is. I am checking right now to see if there was a, a listed date, but there probably wasn't. No, there it's wasn't. It's Dave. We'll, we'll get it when we get it. Yeah, probably December, maybe January. Um, one or the other, I figure, so... Perfect. Well, that is our show. Thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure you uh, subscribe uh, to our uh, solo feed. If you were listening on the Voice of Wrestling podcast feed, the good, the bad, and the hungry, you can find it on all your platforms for podcasts. I know that some of them have been dying, but don't worry, we're still around. And uh, we will be back next week to talk more about this company and do the full gear heat check as we prepare for another pay per view. From Fred, I'm Tyler. Take it easy. Have a good one, everyone. Hey, everybody. My name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, We talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture. And we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Kreich and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks.